I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. If you happen to be a regular listener to the Van City Podcast and you believe in what our church is up to, whether you're in Vancouver or elsewhere, consider supporting the church financially by visiting vancity.church give. The following teaching is part 73 in our series, The Gospel of Matthew. With political backroom deals, betrayal, and an impending execution swirling around Jesus, he took the time to sit with his friends to have one last meal together. Jesus broke a piece of bread and handed it to his disciples. He held out a cup of wine for his friends to drink. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. Eat and drink. What in the world is Jesus doing? As a church, we've been working line by line through Matthew's first century biography of Jesus for the last three and a half years, give or take. It might be closer to four years at this point. Uh, Since we follow Jesus and apprentice him, we have made it our goal to study in depth the teachings uh, and lifestyle and behavior of Jesus found in this first century biography. Word by word, line by line, we have been committed. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago if we were going to finish Matthew by the end of this year. After all, it has been almost four years. And I'm pretty confident that we'll finish chapter 26 by the end of this year, which will set us on pace to finish the last two chapters of Matthew by the end of 2022, maybe 2023. So we're getting close, guys. Hang in there. Uh, We have a bunch to cover tonight, which is a great uh, problem to have, so let's jump right in. But first, let me pray. Jesus, you are here present with us. We want to acknowledge that. We want to learn from you. We want to receive from you through the scriptures by your Holy Spirit. Would you calm our hearts and our minds and silence any distractions so that we can hear clearly from you? We love you, Jesus. Amen. So it's been a few months since we last studied Matthew, and one or two things in the world have happened since then, so I'll assume everyone here is a little fuzzy on the context of what's happening. So to recap what's been happening, Jesus is in Jerusalem, the capital city and the home of the religious life of Israel and home to the religious elite as well. These religious elite are the power brokers of religious and political life in Israel, and they are none too happy with Jesus since he's been critical of their corruption and greed and hypocrisy and leadership. They are leading Israel as a people toward ruin and destruction, both spiritually and nationally. So Jesus Jesus hasn't endeared himself to them, quite the opposite, in fact. They have schemed in secret and decided that the best course of action is to have Jesus arrested and killed. They recruit one of Jesus' inner inner circle, Judas, to be an informant on Jesus' whereabouts. It's shady power politics in first century Jerusalem. But Jesus is not surprised about where the story is headed. In fact, he's been telling his disciples that things will go horribly wrong in Jerusalem. You know, he'll be handed over and he'll be executed, which is um, not the paradigm the disciples have for Jesus. He should be king and conquering general. He should uh, liberate the Jewish people from the oppression of the pagan Roman Empire. He should be the one to establish the never-ending kingdom of Israel. 
He absolutely should not die. But Jesus does not relent from his prediction of apparent doom. He repeats it three times and adds some cryptic language about rising again after it happens, and the disciples remain resistant to the idea. Needless to say, as we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17, the tension and growing dread is starting to become palpable. Something bad is on, just on the precipice of spilling over and crushing the hopes of Jesus' closest followers and friends. But the atmosphere in Jerusalem itself is quite different. Look down with me and let's start reading in verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. The Passover was and still is celebrated every year by Jewish people to commemorate God's saving act of bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, what is uh, generally referred to as the Exodus. Think of it as something akin to our Thanksgiving meal where typically a large group of people sit down to have a traditional large meal. But the Passover has much more intentionality and symbolism and historical validity and actually takes the perspective of the oppressed rather than those who conquered through violence and oppression. Each piece of the Passover meal carries symbolic significance of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is retold as the meal is eaten. Psalms are sung or chanted throughout the night. It's an interactive celebration of remembrance. And we can't unpack all the specifics of the Exodus tonight, but, but simply put, it's God's redemption of Israel out of slavery. Egypt, at that time, was an economic and military superpower who had enslaved Israel and exploited them to further their economic power, and even went as far as an attempted, the attempted ethnic cleansing of Israel. It's horrific stuff. But God intervened in the situation, and the pinnacle of this intervention resulted in a meal, a, a slaughtered lamb, blood on the doorposts of the Israelite homes, and salvation for the Israelites from death and enslavement in Egypt. I wish we had time to look at the story itself, but we don't. So read, uh, read Exodus chapters 1 through 15 on your own time this week. It's a really good story. You'll really like it, or you won't. By the time of Jesus, though, uh, the Jews were really like longing for a new exodus, both spiritual and political. They longed for their relationship to be right with God as a nation, and they longed for freedom from Rome. The Passover wasn't just a celebration to remember the exodus, but it also gave images and, and themes to the longing they felt in the present for a future liberation. They needed a new exodus. During the Passover, Jerusalem would be flooded by pilgrims trying to celebrate it. So the city would be like bursting at the seams with people. So naturally, the disciples want to figure out a place to celebrate this important meal. It's their responsibility to figure out the preparations. So they ask Jesus, and he tells them that they, he has a hookup in the city where they can eat the meal together. And he also adds a bit of a cryptic line. He says, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. 
If you've uh, been following along with us in the Gospel of Matthew for any of the three and a half or so years we've been studying it, then you know that it is very normal for Jesus to be cryptic and mysterious. For the reader, us, uh, we know what's going to happen and the tension a comment like that adds to the story. The disciples still seem fairly clueless or at least resistant to the thought that something big is about to happen. And so the disciples obey Jesus and they set about to prepare the Passover meal. They, they do as Jesus commands them to do. And so I want you to make note of this because it will be important for our purposes later. What the disciples don't realize is that this will be Jesus' last meal. This is the last time they'll eat together as the 12 and as things are. But Jesus has very intentionally chosen to eat his last meal with the 12 people he calls his friends and his family. So let's keep reading. Look down at verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Okay, there's a lot going on here, so uh, stick with me. As Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover, they are you know, together eating this meal with uh, Jesus as he acts as the head of the group by taking responsibility for rehe rehearsing the Exodus story as the meal moves along and reminding the disciples of the significance of each food element. It's going uh, smoothly, it seems. It's something the disciples grew up hearing every year, something they were really familiar with. And then Jesus says something about being betrayed interrupting the usual flow of the Passover meal. And the disciples, understandably, are on edge. And uh, I think the NIV's translation of the reaction as being very sad is maybe a bit lacking. Some commentators translated it as horrified or utterly dismayed. Jesus has just dropped a bomb of a statement in the middle of this meal. The disciples respond by going to Jesus. Uh, we think privately as the meal continues on through the night and ask him if they are the one that will betray him. And think about the trust they have in Jesus. I mean, they get a lot wrong, but here they take Jesus at his word. They believe him. And they come to Jesus to check themselves. They assume they aren't the ones. The grammar of the question posed to Jesus assumes his answer will be no, but they want to make sure. Lord, they call him, and they believe him as if he is the Lord. It's not just words. It's fascinating. Matthew definitely intended us as disciples of Jesus to take the posture of self-examination that the disciples do. I love this. Uh, commentator Dale Bruner says this of Jesus' intent. Jesus says almost as many troubling truths as he does comforting ones. And the purpose of all Jesus' troubling talk is, as here, to get people to come and talk with him. Jesus is inviting us to ask ourselves, 
have I betrayed Jesus? To come to Jesus in a posture of belief and humility and ask him, is it me? It's vital for what will come next in the story, but, but we'll have to wait for that for a few minutes because uh, there's a couple more things that, that can be easy for us to pass over. Get it? <laughs> yeah, who likes, yeah, thank you, Allie. That was a sympathy clap, huh? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's me at my finest. Uh, okay, so there's a couple things that we can, we can pass over, but we should uh, pay attention to. In verse 18, Jesus mentions something about his appointed time. In verse 24, he speaks about Judas's betrayal as something written about. At this moment, it very much seems Jesus has a theological understanding of what's going to happen to him based on the scriptures and what they say about the Messiah. Which scriptures? Well, like uh, Psalm 22 right here, uh, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish, continuing on? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in, in Yahweh. They say, let Yahweh rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And then the psalm ends this way. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. Or this from Isaiah chapter uh, 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah continues on, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. And then it ends like this, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then this from Daniel chapter seven, last one. In my vision, that's Daniel speaking at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, which is Jesus' favorite way to re refer to himself. There was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, read God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus not only knew the scriptures and applied them to himself, but trusted that they were true. He trusted that even in the darkest moments, there was purpose and victory looming on the other side. Jesus bet his life on the, on the truth of the scriptures, which unsurprisingly also shaped how he treated Judas. Notice that Jesus specifically speaks of betrayal. 
And that phrase he uses, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me is an idiom for someone who is relationally close. And it could be Jesus referencing Psalm 42 that speaks of the Messiah. It's someone you are intimate with, someone important to you. You know, we tend to demonize Judas for his betrayal of Jesus, but Jesus' view of Judas is that he's a close friend, someone Jesus cares deeply about. It's an added layer of tragedy on top of the direction the story is already headed. Now, look down at the text, and in verse 22, what do the other disciples call to Jesus? And you're going to have to say it out loud, really loud, because it'll be hard to hear you through the mask. What do the other disciples in verse 22 call Jesus? Lord. Lord. Great job. Good. Yes, Lord. Now look at verse 25. What does Judas call Jesus? Rabbi, teacher. Well done. Good job. The brave few. Matthew, throughout his biography of Jesus, uses this interesting dichotomy of those who refer to Jesus as Lord as being insiders, you know, relating to Jesus correctly as their Lord. And those who refer to Jesus as rabbi are kind of outsiders, those that have an insufficient understanding of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a rabbi, but he's so much more than that. And Matthew is trying to, to highlight that point. Judas actually betrays himself by how he addresses Jesus as an outsider, rabbi. Now, he, now uh, who here is surprised by Jesus' cryptic response to Judas? You have said so, Jesus says to him. <laughs> Not an affirmation, but neither is it an explicit rebuke of Judas. Why wouldn't Jesus just come straight out and say, it is you, Judas, stop, stop pretending? Why so mysterious? Judas has yet to carry out his betrayal and the deadly consequences of it. What Jesus seems to be doing in line with his character is to be offering Judas the chance to repent. Isn't that something? Jesus, at least somewhat aware of what Judas has done and will do, is offering Judas an out, a chance to make a choice other than he does. Because, get this, uh, Jesus loves Judas. Jesus is friends with Judas. Jesus values Judas. And betrayal is brutal. Uh, betrayal can and often does destroy relationships. It requires hard work by both parties to come to a place of reconciliation. And, and even then, it can't be like what it was. The relationship still can be you know, good and meaningful and with intimacy and even in ways that it wasn't before. You know, I've seen it in marriages that function in more healthy ways, better communication, more transparency after betrayal. But my advice is make it your goal to add, <laughs> to add those things to your important relationships without the betrayal. It works out great for everyone. When Jesus calls to work for reconciliation, calls us to work for re reconciliation, as much as it depends on us, with those who betray us, it's important to remember that he knows deeply personal, humiliating betrayal. Jesus was tortured, uh, stripped naked, and executed in a horrific way as a result of Judas's betrayal. That's some pretty serious betrayal. 
For the ones who do the betraying, it's important to remember that Jesus longs for your repentance and to extend forgiveness to you. He longs for you to work to heal the damage that you've done as much as depends on you and with his help. As Jesus reads the Old Testament and comes to an understanding of what's going to happen to him, he's also reading the same Old Testament that portrays God as, the, as a faithful husband and Israel as his adulterous wife. God takes very seriously Israel's infidelity and betrayal, but still longs for their repentance and reconciliation to him. He longs for their relationship to be healed. Jesus is applying that same posture of God towards Judas, acknowledging the gravity of the betrayal and presenting Judas opportunities to repent, to make different choices. But Judas uh, chooses to pretend to be innocent. And so the Passover meal continues on from this moment. Look down at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, again, a, a lot here. As the Passover meal continues on, uh, Jesus throws another curveball. So remember, the Passover is celebrating what event? Exodus. Well done, Jesse. Love you, bro. Thank you. Right, the Exodus. Uh, the food at the meal is designed to symbolize the themes of the Exodus. But Jesus starts talking about himself, specifically his body and his blood. He reinterprets the Passover elements to be about him by using somewhat grotesque and disturbing imagery, eating flesh and drinking blood. But really, it's actually a brilliant move on his part. Jesus is masterfully weaving the Passover and the greater story of Israel and the prophecy we read earlier in, uh, from Isaiah about the Messiah and really so much more. He's weaving this all together to form a new and stunningly cohesive paradigm for understanding how God is acting in him to redeem all of humanity from slavery to sin and death. No small task. And he institutes for his followers a way to poignantly remember all of it with, with two of the most simple elements of food, bread and wine. Hats off to Jesus for pulling it off. Body and blood remind us of the physicality and realness of Jesus. He is God in the flesh and blood who lived among us. He was not Superman floating just above this dirty and defiled world. He was not some character created by a tiny group of wacky first century Jews looking to take Judaism in a different direction. He had a body that people could touch. He had breath in his lungs. He had blood in his veins. Body and blood remind us that this physical Jesus, God in flesh and blood, suffered tremendously in his body and then died for us as he bled out 
as a despised criminal. Don't miss that Jesus intentionally broke the bread before handing it to the disciples. Body and blood remind us to the, ex- uh, the, the extent to which God went to set things right. Jesus uses the word covenant. Uh, think of it as a firm commitment. Body and blood remind us of God's firm, unfailing commitment to us. And body and blood remind us that it is not based on our sacrificing for God that makes us right or worthy or acceptable before him. It's not our body. It is the broken body and the poured out blood of our Lord Jesus that cleanses us. It is his body and blood that he offers to us and we merely receive what he offers. It's just staggering what's, what's packed in into the bread and the wine and it's not surprising that throughout church history, uh, certain followers of Jesus have elevated the actual like piece of bread and wine in the cup into supernatural elements. Uh, you know, the bread and the wine in a real sense transforming into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. And it generally strikes us as ridiculously superstitious. As we unwrap the plastic-wrapped styrofoam piece of bread that we have in the little plastic cup, and we get just a little drop of really bad grape juice, we're like, man, that's so superstitious. (laughs) We definitely don't believe the elements supernaturally transform in a real sense into the flesh and blood of Jesus. But what we are prone to miss is the wonder, the mystery, the awe of communion. Something we as a church have to intentionally push back against. And we actually have in the past with teachings on communion and communion meals together as a church. Really fun times, really meaningful times. But the pandemic, as Josh said earlier, has made that a bit more challenging, namely that the plastic-wrapped communion doesn't help us into the sort of posture intended for communion. But that plastic-wrapped communion doesn't stop us either. It's just something we have to intentionally overcome. The bread and the cup symbolize to us and calls us to remember the means by which we have forgiveness through Jesus. The bread and the cup remind us of God's commitment to us and the committed relationship he invites us into through Jesus. But the bread and the cup also calls us to hope for the future. Jesus says he will not drink again until he does so with his followers in his Father's kingdom. Jesus is anticipating a party when he returns to set things right. And he's waiting for us to arrive before he starts the party. And then, that's it. The meal concludes with singing psalms and the evening continues on. Good job, guys. Uh, That was some solid work. So let's uh, tie all of these threads together and talk about what this means for us. I wanna start by saying, uh, if you remember just one thing from tonight, I hope it is what I'm about to say, okay? The way Jesus carries out this story and the way Matthew records it with care for the details teaches us one of the most important things about following Jesus. You must receive from Jesus before you follow him. 
In the story of the bread and wine, Jesus is the one doing all the actions, taking, blessing, breaking, giving, commanding. The disciples only do one thing, receive what Jesus gives. There's no performance, no worthiness, no earning that the disciples are required to do. And we can see this explicitly by the fact that Judas participates in receiving the bread and wine. Think about that. We receive from Jesus before we can do anything ourselves. For some people, one of the most challenging parts of following Jesus is not being able to make yourself right by your own willpower and behavior or to make yourself worthy by those things. You can't earn forgiveness from Jesus, but you try. You're helpless to cleanse the shame and guilt of sin on your own, but instead of admitting helplessness, you organize your life to put on a veneer of innocence and wholeness. It can be uncomfortable to receive that which you can never be worthy of, but that's exactly what communion symbolizes. Communion is a place where we remember and reenact the forgiveness we have in Jesus, the commitment and relationship we have with God through Jesus. While the bread and wine also force us to confront our own unworthiness, it also forces us to confront the love God has for us. Just as it's necessary for us to own up to our unworthiness and helplessness to deal with our own sin, It's also necessary to trust that you can never be too far gone for Jesus to redeem you and to forgive you. Jesus is firmly committed to you, even in your worst moments. Jesus died that we would, Jesus died not that we would wallow in our sin and unworthiness, but that we would be brought out of enslavement to sin and made worthy through him. It's God's love overcoming our unworthiness that the bread and wine symbolizes. I love how Dale Bruner put it in his commentary. He says this, in the worship service, the Lord not only wants to tell his people how much he loves them, but he also wants to embrace them. And now even individually with his love, the Eucharist, which is another way to say communion, the bread and the cup, is the good caress by which The risen Lord embraces his people and so assures them again and again of his love and forgiveness. Even though Jesus is not here with us in a physical way, the bread and wine is a tangible, physical expression of his love for you and for me. Uh, You know, when a a person has a loved one die, it's it's common for the person to keep and cherish uh, physical possessions of the person who died. Uh, When my father-in-law died about three years ago, I kept one of his hats. It's a NASCAR hat, Jimmy Johnson, I believe. Any NASCAR fans in here? Too embarrassed to admit it. Oh, Patrick. No, yeah, he's not actually, yeah. Uh, I'm not a NASCAR fan either, just uh, for the record. But I have this NASCAR hat in my closet, and I wear it every once in a while. Um, For me, it reminds me of our times, me and my father-in-law sitting in his man cave and watching some, you know, what, football game or movie, and just being together and and talking and and catching up. It's an old hat. Uh, It's definitely seen better days, and it reminds me of his hard work and the projects that we got to work on together. 
It reminds me of his enthusiastic fist pump every time whenever like one of his favorite teams or NASCAR driver was winning. He always did this thing. It's it great. It's burned into my memory. But when it kind of comes down to it, uh, the hat reminds me of his love for me and my love for him. That's communion. When you take it, you are receiving a physical representation that Jesus knows you, sees you, understands everything about you, and says to you, I love you. I think using the disciples in this story as a sort of paradigm for communion is helpful. So kind of to wrap things up tonight, it's not often that the gospels portray the disciples as the example we should follow. More often than not, it seems we learn what not to do from their behavior, which is, I'm only half joking about that. Uh, there will be more of that, by the way, before we finish Matthew in those last two chapters. But let's uh, look at a few things that we can draw from these disciples. Jesus provokes the disciples to self-examination by talking about uh, betrayal before they receive the bread and the wine. They take a reflective posture and they go to Jesus and talk to him about it. And I think this is instructive to us in how we can approach receiving communion. It's an opportunity, even though it might feel a bit intimidating to approach Jesus and to ask him to speak to us about our sin before we receive communion. Jesus does not speak with accusation or condemnation over his followers. If that's what you hear, that isn't the voice of Jesus. Honestly, uh, come, come talk to me afterwards if, if that's something that you really struggle with. I'd love you to like, just reach out and uh, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Jesus speaks correction, conviction, and truth. He does do that and, and those can be hard to hear from him at times. But he does it with love and out of care and concern for you. Communion is an opportunity for him to speak into areas of your life that you may not be aware that he'd like to. And then the disciples also demonstrate a willingness to believe Jesus and to take him at his word. Jesus said one of them would betray him, and they believed that what he was saying was true and could even be true of them, even if they were unaware of it. Taking Jesus at his word is approaching communion with a resolution to believe Jesus when he says, you are forgiven, I am firmly committed to you, I love you. Even if it doesn't feel true in the moment, even if you're doubting or messing up or unable to have what you consider an, is an appropriate emotional reaction when you think of Jesus saying those things to you, none of that changes the truth of what Jesus says over you. You don't conjure up the belief to make his words true, you don't have to meet some specific amount of faith on the faith meter in order to make communion work for you. And while your feelings and emotions matter, they don't somehow indicate whether or not this is true. Simply put, Jesus said it, and it's true. It's not up to you. And finally, uh, in this story, the disciples demonstrate exceptional obedience. They prepare the Passover meal as Jesus commands them to do, and, and they receive it by eating the bread and drinking the wine. They do as Jesus commands. 
The first step of obedience and following Jesus is receiving what he offers. Obedience in all other areas of life flow from this first step of obedience. And communion reminds us that our ongoing obedience to Jesus is dependent on him, his love and forgiveness, his spirit empowering us to live in obedience. It's the basics of apprenticing our master Jesus. And every week we take communion together as a church Whether we've been following Jesus for a few hours or a few decades, we return to the beginning of our apprenticeship and receive from our King. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.